Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning from the word we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 25 in just a little bit. I was 17 years old when I enlisted in the Navy, so young that I, my parents had to sign the paperwork for me because I wasn't legally allowed to sign the enlistment paperwork uh, myself. I was the de- delayed enlistment program, and then one month after my 18th birthday, um, I left for Navy boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois. And my faith up until that point was, I, I had been given a, a lot of um, I had a really great foundation in faith. I, was, I went to a Christian school. I knew a lot about the Bible. I'd memorized tons of Bible verses. I was in Awana when I was a kid, if you know what that is. And so I learned a ton, ton of Bible verses, had, had this Christian education. But the problem was I'd never really made my faith my own. I never really took ownership of it myself. And I like to picture a baton relay, you know, that, that relay race, the Olympic event where they're running different legs of the race and then they pass the baton on to the next person who continues the race, and I'd never quite grabbed that baton. Or if I had, it was kind of a flimsy grasp, and I was bumbling it a little bit. And when I left for the Navy, I was away from my, my family of faith, the church I'd grown up in, my parents and, and their, their support when it came to faith. And this is in the days before FaceTime and all that stuff, so I wasn't staying super connected with them um, in ways that you, the technology allows you to do now. And when I was in that environment around a lot of people that did not share my, my faith, the little drifting or the kind of not being real secure in what I believed just, just really was magnified. And I, I floundered in many ways during those young adult years, I mean, teen, late teen years um, up to my early 20s of just not sure where I stood when it came to faith. And there were times when I was kind of making an attempt. I was even known as the Christian on the ship that I was stationed on, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower big aircraft carrier. I worked in the engine room um, on that aircraft carrier. And the people that I worked with were like, yeah, you're the Christian guy, right? And, and I would talk about what Christians believed or talk about what I believed sometimes, you know. But, but really, it came to a point where I, I decided I got to kind of make a decision about this. Do I believe this or do I not believe this? And for a period of about a year, I decided I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if I believe what I what the faith that was passed down to me. And I really ran from faith. It was less of a drifting and more of a running away from it. And during that time, my life was, was turbulent. It was, it was difficult. Um, I ended up getting in trouble in the military, and, and, and I, had just, I made decisions I, I re- regretted during that time period. And there was this moment where I realized that I, the, the life that I had, was leading, where I was directing my life and I was deciding that I'm going to go, I'm going to run very fast towards what I think will make me happy, what I think will fulfill me, what I think will give me meaning. I was discovering that I was running into brick walls. I was, I was finding myself in these situations where I was like, I, I am so deeply unhappy. I am miserable. What, what, am, I, what am I doing and it was during this time period where I, of course, went back to what I believed and remembered like these truths, these foundational truths in my own life, and, and realized that, that me leading my own life, me being in charge of my life, was not going well, and I really needed Jesus to be a part of my life. And, and during that time and kind of in this moment of realization, I remember praying something like, a, it was a prayer or something like, Jesus, will you take me back? Jesus, will you take me back? Like, I, I've been kind of wandering away from you, and I'm so 
unhappy. And I really need you to be a part of my life. And there was this moment of prayer, and, and it, that moment was a, was a pivot point for my life. That, that changed everything for me. And I began to follow Jesus honestly and earnestly, and he became a part of my life in a, in a very real way at that point. The years to come, like the things, it was almost like just rapid fire things, positive things in my life after that. After I, I got out of the military and found myself in a college ministry with a lot of people my own age that were serious about their faith, and that's where I met Pam. That's where I felt called into ministry. I was I went from getting out of the Navy to being in Bible college over a really short period of time, and then eventually moving to Spokane, Washington to help start a church, this one, um, over such a short amount of time. And it was, it was so dramatic, the transformation in my life, and I'm so grateful for the way that, that God became a part of my life in that moment, in the transformation that he's worked in, in my heart and life. And I talked about how... how discouraged I was, how unhappy I was, how I had so little meaning, so little purpose in my life, that has made all the difference now. To have Jesus in my life gives me that meaning, gives me that purpose, gives me that life that I so desperately needed. Jesus um, said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, John 10.10. That verse is so meaningful to me personally because of my own story, my own history, and the impact that God has made in my life and the way that Jesus has brought life. And it's this, it's always on the back of your program, by the way, that verse, because that verse impacted me so much. It's become sort of a theme um, really for, for our church, not just me. It's something that you've experienced too, this idea of Jesus giving life and purpose and a relationship with him making all the difference and him bringing something in, in, into your life that's only possible through a relationship with him. That's a little snapshot of, of my story, and I mentioned that um, for a couple of reasons. One of them is that we're going to be looking at Paul's story today in Acts chapter 25. The Apostle Paul tells, um, we, we hear his story, his testimony, several times throughout the book of Acts, and there's deep, different details are included in, in different, uh, different occasions. Acts chapter 9, we're told kind of from Luke's perspective, the story he heard about the Apostle Paul and how Jesus dramatically encountered uh, Paul's life. And then Acts 22, we see Paul in front of the mob from last week. When we were talking about this uh, last, last week, he's arrested, this violent mobs attacked him, and he is being falsely accused. Like, this guy was trying to desecrate our temple, and he's trying to mislead all these people. And so Paul is under arrest um, for his safety by the Roman guards that come and, and rescue him, essentially, from being beaten to death by a mob. And he takes the opportunity, hey, do you mind if I address this mob that was just moments ago beating me? I have some things I'd like to tell them. And the mob, the, the Roman uh, military leader allows him to do that. Sure, yeah, go ahead and address this violent mob. And he begins to share his testimony with them and shares his story. And so he shares uh, the story of, of the way Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and how much that changed his life. And he's trying to reach this group of, of people with the good news of Jesus. In Acts chapter 25, we, we see him do this again. This is the period of time in Paul's life where he's on trial. There's multiple trials that he faces. There's this one before the mob. There's the one before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Um, and I want to mention one verse from Acts 23 before we get to Acts 25. After his trial before the Sanhedrin, um, that night we're told this happens to Paul. Acts 23, 11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This must have been so encouraging for Paul. Paul was someone who was very strategic in the way that he shared the gospel and the ways that he tried to start churches in different places. And in this moment, he's told, hey, you've been in Jerusalem testifying about me. I want you to take courage because he gets a glimpse into Jesus' plan for him that he's going to go to Rome, the most powerful city in the world, the most influential city in the ancient world at this time, the, the seat of the power of the Roman Empire where all the authorities were and, and the Roman Forum and all the governmental structures and all of this. You're going to go right into the heart of that and testify about me. The, the, later we find out that Paul, has, Paul discovers that there's a plot against his life, that there's this group of, of men that have committed. They say, we will not eat or drink until we assassinate Paul. And the word somehow gets out. Paul's nephew finds out about this plot and goes to the centurion and says, hey, there's this plot against Paul's life. We've got to get him to safety. And so under cover of darkness at night, under heavy, heavy military guard, Paul is evacuated out of Jerusalem, and he goes to a city called Caesarea. And there he faces more trials. He meets with the Roman governor um, and who hears his case. Why are you under arrest? What's going on? Here's the story from him a little bit. Later, a high priest, the high priest from Jerusalem, and a Roman lawyer will come and present their case against Paul. And the case kind of falls apart, but, but Paul remains in prison. Then there's a new governor that comes into place. We're told that Felix, the, the governor that was previously there, was sort of corrupt. He was looking for a bribe from the Apostle Paul, which Paul didn't give him. And now there's a new governor that's, that comes in named Festus. Festus offers as the new governor to, to get right to work on fixing some of the brokenness of the bureaucracy that he was inheriting from Felix. And he, he looks at Paul's case very quickly. What's going on here? We've got a prisoner that I've inherited. Let me, let me hear your story. And then Scripture tells us, wanting to do a favor for the Jews, he, he says, I'm going to take you back to Jerusalem, and you can stand trial in Jerusalem. And Paul, knowing that he's not going to get a fair trial, knowing that it'll probably be dangerous for him to be back in Jerusalem, there was already a plot for his life. Paul appeals to Caesar. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to take, this is like us saying, I'm taking my case all the way to the Supreme Court. But in Paul's case, because this was a life or death case, he didn't have to go through all the, all the loophole or all the loops or all the different steps that we would have to go to. If we want to take our case to the Supreme Court, there's lots of other courts you go through before you can do that. But Paul, in his case, could, could go to Caesar. He could go right to the top. And so Paul says, I'm going to take my case to Caesar. And this is where our story begins that we're going to be looking at in Acts 25. So Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered him that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. 
Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we, may ha- we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So we're going to hit pause right there. You should know that you are in like a law and order type courtroom drama here. Like this is the royal court. This is the... This is the moment where there's a tri- this is the big moment. Dramatic things are going to happen. How many of you ever watch the courtroom dramas? You ever see no hand? Okay, three hands. Thank you. Uh, I see that hand. All right. Um, not so this this like or the John Grisham stories, you know that kind of thing. Those movies where there's this intense courtroom scene. We are there in an intense courtroom scene. This is a dramatic moment. We're told that the setting is all of the the pomp and circumstance, this like this royal court thing happening. There's these royal visitors there, and I'm going to tell you about who these key characters are in just a moment. But we're told that this case is about something specific. Paul's on trial for his life. Festus is pretty sure he's not done anything deserving of death. But we're told that this is about this religious dispute among the Jewish people but also specifically about the resurrection. So in some ways, the resurrection is on trial in this story. Paul's story himself, why is he even in prison? We think at this point he's been in in jail for a couple of years in Caesarea, waiting for justice to be done. And the key characters here, we're told, you know, Festus is one of them. And this is tragically one of those names that has passed away from, from modern usage. I don't know why anyone doesn't name their kids Festus, um, it sounds like the uncle from the Adams family, right? I actually had to look it up. I'm like, is it Uncle Festus? Uncle Fester. Um, or maybe this is the guy who came up with the holiday from Seinfeld, Festivus, you know, Festivus. So this is, and Festus really, do, it means like celebration. Like his name, he's like, that, that's what the name means is ce- celebrating. He's the Roman governor. He's the one who really has all the power in this situation, But in the room as well are two people from the royal family from Jerusalem, Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Agrippa is known to history as Herod Agrippa, I think the second. Um, He is part of the Herodian dynasty, this family that shows up all over the Bible. King Herod was the one who built the temple complex that we looked at last week. He was a great builder, but also a very evil man, Herod the Great was the original, he was the great uh, grandfather of the Herod Agrippa that we see in our story here today. Herod the Great was the same person who tried to have baby Jesus put to death in the gospel account of the birth of Jesus. 
um, his son, uh, Herod the Great's son, was another Herod, and he was the one who put John the Baptist to death in the gospel stories. And then his son put James to death, the apostle, one of the sons of thunder in, in the book of Acts, one of the stories we covered um, or I think it was, I don't know if we read that one as a part of our Sunday service, but it was earlier in the book of Acts. Now, this great-grandson of Herod the Great is there in this courtroom, and he comes from a long line of people who have killed Christians before him or killed people of faith before him. And this is an important speech that Paul's about to offer before him. The moment is ready. The scene is set He's, all he needs to do now is defend himself. All he has to do is speak. And this is an important speech. I was thinking about important speeches through history. And these kind of, you know, these world leaders that are standing up speaking at these kind of pivotal moments in, in history. And I think about, you know, Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You didn't know I did impressions. But, and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> How about like uh, FDR, right? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. These moments in you know, World War II history and just this, or, or Winston Churchill, this will be our finest hour. We'll fight on the beaches. We'll fight in the fields. You know, these, these great, these pivotal moments in history and there's important speeches. And, and I, I, we've talked about this earlier. I was talking about in earlier this summer uh, when we were talking about Peter standing up before all these important people and how, you know, there's the old Seinfeld line about how people's number one fear is public speaking, number two is death. And so if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be giving the, rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. It's old Seinfeld thing. Um, public speaking, I know for a lot, a lot of you in this room, that's like your worst fear. Like, no, thank you. I would rather not stand up in front of you and, and all of you people and talk right now. And it used to make me more nervous than it does now. It still kind of makes me nervous, I'll be honest. Don't feel bad for me or anything. I'll get over it. But I still feel it. Even standing in front of you, this friendly crowd that I've taught in front of for years, it's like uh, still makes me slightly nervous. But imagine how Paul must have felt. Man, he's in front of the royal family, all these important people, and it's this moment that God has prepared him for. In fact, we're told when, when, he was, when he came to Jesus initially, the prophet that was sent to go pray over him, uh, Ananias, was told in Acts 9.15, it says, he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. He's going to be in front of important people, carrying my name in front of these people. And now we're ready to, to read what happened. So Acts chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 1 all the way to verse 32. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have, a, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning, among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship 
night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things not opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So let's talk about what we just read there. We see this, his, this, this, this courtroom drama, like I said, Paul standing there in chains in front of the, these, this group of important people. And then he tells his story. I used to be so angry at these Christians. He calls them in the previous story, the way. It was just like the kind of early name that they were known by. I was trying to persecute this way, these people that had claimed Jesus was the Messiah, and I was so enraged at them that he would be willing to do anything, including putting them to death. He would be willing to use violence and anything to stop this thing. He said he would, try, he would force them to blaspheme. This is the first time we've heard that detail, that Paul would try to get these people to say bad things about Jesus or to claim that they didn't believe in Jesus, and he would do whatever he could 
to stop this Christian movement until on the way to Damascus to break up another gathering of Christians to arrest people. He had papers from the high priest sending him there to, to carry out you know, this, this raid against the Christian community in Damascus. Everything changed in a moment. Jesus appeared to him. He, he sees the truth. He sees what is, what is real. Jesus speaks to him and calls him out of darkness into the great light and then sends him. And his trajectory of his life changes. This is the moment where everything changes. And then he does that. And he says, I've had God's help since then. God has helped me. God has, has been moving me along. And, and that I stand here today saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And then there's this, one thing I want to point out about, about this before we, get, before we move on. Um, I love verse 14, and I mentioned this when we were telling a story back in Acts chapter 9, but where Jesus' words to Paul, why are you persecuting me? That Jesus so identifies with his people that when someone treats his people wrong, it's like they're treating Jesus himself wrong. Right? Jesus is his people. We are the body of Christ. There's this connection that Jesus makes here in this moment that I take great comfort from. We've got several lessons we're going to point out from this passage, uh, reminders for us or lessons for us from this story, the Apostle Paul. And it's, uh, the first one is this, the resurrection is key to our faith. This is the central point. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is one of the central points of almost every story in the book of Acts. When, the, when all the disciples, uh, when Paul himself, when they have the opportunity to speak about Jesus, they always bring up the resurrection. They're like, this is the big deal. It's the central part of our faith. Jesus was dead, and now he's alive again. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven after spending time with a bunch of people that got to see him first. And the resurrection, he says, it's both true and rational. When he's talking about what he believes, this is when Festus says, Paul, you were out of your mind. I kinda, that's a part that always makes me chuckle a little bit. Paul, you're so smart. Like your, your great learning has, has caused you to become insane. Like all the information that you take in all, all the time, clearly you're an intelligent person, but you're out of your mind, Festus says. And he says, I am not. It is both true and rational. What I'm telling you is true. What I'm telling you is rational. That the resurrection is both true and it makes sense. There's a way of understanding it where it, it makes sense. People, there's a preconceived idea that a lot of people that probably aren't at church this morning think, hey, that can't happen because that doesn't happen. Right? How can the resurrection happen because that kind of thing doesn't happen? So how could it have happened then? And for secular historians that try to explain where Christianity came from and where the, how the church arose, they have a real problem with how to describe the resurrection. Like, what, how do you describe the early explosive growth of Christianity that it continued for the, the 200 years and continues still to this day, but how do you specifically describe those early days and how quickly it grew without the resurrection? What is the alternate explanation if, if the resurrection didn't happen? Because we know it was central to everything they talked about. Jesus died and then he's alive again. Jesus rose from the grave. He triumphed over not only our sin, but also over death itself. He came back. We saw him was their message. 
it would have been pretty easy to disprove it in those early days. No, you didn't. Like, we have his body here. That You definitely didn't do that, or he definitely didn't do that. But it, it, is, a, it is a problem for people who, who discount the miraculous and who say that that kind of thing could never happen, because how do you even explain this explosive growth? Because that was, the, that was their message. And Paul mentions two things here that help us understand why the belief, why our belief in the resurrection makes sense rationally, why it is both true and rational, like he says. First of all, he's, he's, talking about, he's talking about the fact that God could do that. He said, if in verse 8 of chapter 26, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In other words, if you consider that there is a God, that there is supernatural, there is things outside the bonds of the natural world and everything we can observe that we see in our regular everyday life, if you make room for the idea of God, then you have to also make room for the possibility that God could raise the dead. He's God. Like he, can make, he makes up the rules. He created the rules. He can, he can break the rules. He can raise the dead. But then Paul says to King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. This was not some secret little thing that no one knew about. He's like, you're from Jerusalem. You've heard the stories. You, you know, you can examine this yourself. Scholars believe that one of the first books written in our New Testament was 1 Corinthians maybe 15 to 20 years at the most after the events of Jesus' life, after his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth, and he talks about the resurrection a ton in that letter. He says, here's what we believe, here's what we know. And he, first, first of all, that it's central to our faith, that without the resurrection, we're without hope. We should be pitied as people. But then he also later in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 15, runs through the resurrection appearances of Jesus. He said Jesus appeared first to this person, then to this person, then to these crowds. And he says some of these people have passed away by now, but many of them are still alive. In other words, ask them. If you want to know if the resurrection happened, go talk to the people who told me they saw the risen Jesus because they're still around and you can still talk to them. So the resurrection is key to our faith, and it's important that we remember that. This is like, this is a big deal for Christians. This is not just a once a year we celebrate it on Easter thing, but a central part of what we believe as followers of Christ. The second point for us, takeaway for us, is this. We must keep our eyes on the harvest. We must keep our eyes on the harvest. Last week's message, I was talking about the difficulty that Paul went through and literally the physical violence, being beaten by a mob, almost killed if he wasn't snatched away and brought to safety by the Roman soldiers. I said that, that Paul, it would have been easy for Paul to ask in that moment, how could God bring something good out of this? Or more simply, can God bring something good out of this? That's a very easy question for us to ask in moments like that. This situation's very hard. Is there a way that God can redeem this in some way? Is there a way that God can bring something good out of this? And we see Paul speaking to the mob that moments before was beating him and sharing his story with them. How can God bring something good out of this? The trial, this moment we mentioned, this interruption from Festus, you're out of your mind, and this, this thing turns into a very pointed conversation with King Agrippa. Agrippa says, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? Paul says, I want all of you in this room to become like I am, but without these chains. So Paul's trial goals, 
here, like his mindset going into this trial. Like, I'm going to be on trial for my life. If, if this goes well, I could be released. If this goes poorly, I could be, you know, condemned to death, depending on how this goes. His trial goals here are not to win his case, but to win the people. He's not even trying to, like, win the case here. He, well, he knows that he's going to end up in Rome. He knows that Jesus has promised him that. Now Rome gets to foot the bill for his trip to Rome. He's going to go and be in front of Caesar. He's trying to win the people. I, this harvest image on this point, we must keep our eyes on the harvest. This comes from Jesus when, he's, when Jesus is talking to his disciples. And they're in Samaria, and he sees that, that, that God has been preparing the Samaritans for this moment. And he speaks with the woman at the well, and his disciples come back, and he says, The fields are white unto harvest. And I've never spent meaningful time on a farm except for picking out my pumpkins up at Green Bluff. But I'm told that that means that the, the white under harvest, it's harvest time. Like the fields are ready to be harvested. And he's saying about the people there. These people just need to be gathered up and brought into God's family. They're ready. So this harvest image here for us is one that we borrow from Jesus. And in and, and other passages, it says pray for workers. Like God's preparing a harvest. We just need workers to gather the harvest up. And this is how he views people that are being invited into his family. I also find it very profound and powerful that I had to tell you or at least remind you of who Festus and Agrippa were because those names are basically lost to history. Like you can look them up online and learn about them. But that the Apostle Paul's name is in a book in just about every home in our nation. And you can learn about Jesus and the Apostle Paul and just the way that these super, the power dynamics change so much. The most powerful people in that room, most powerful people in the world at that time was Rome and Agrippa and all these people. And it just changed over time to now Jesus, his power and his prominence rose. And like Jesus was talking about the mustard seed thing, this tiny little seed that grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And that's the way his kingdom does. We need to see ourselves as a part of God's mission in this world that we are being sent on his behalf to the harvest, that there are people that need Jesus the way we needed Jesus, and we get to be a part of bringing them into his family. And I think the way we do that is we need to be faithful to tell our story. We need to tell our story. That's point number three. Um, Paul tells his story, and I think this was his signature story, and I'll tell you what that means in a few moments, but we, we need to acknowledge that stories are powerful. A well-told story can carry the day in ways that just telling someone information often does not. Like, here's all the details, here's all the facts, and there's some power to that, but if you can tell a compelling story that encapsulates those ideas and those facts, that will is much more persuasive, that in, in, encourages people to come to faith or come to the truth much more powerfully and much more easily than just facts alone. There's a wonderful book that I've got called Sent, and I've been talking about this book a number of times through the series in the book of Acts. But this book is, is really good, and it, it encourages us to be a part of sharing our faith with people who don't know Jesus. And one of the things it encourages us to do is to tell our story. She talks about the signature story, which comes from a marketing uh, book by a Stanford um, professor. It says that a signature story is the kind of story that's a personal narrative you leverage to advocate for an idea. It's an intriguing, authentic, involving narrative 
with a strategic message. And she encourages Christians to do the same. Talk about before you met Jesus, how you met Jesus, and then after you met Jesus, the difference that Jesus has made in your life. I did that at the beginning of the service. That was me sharing my story, my signature story, if you will. This was the story that means so much to me about how God transformed my life, how I met Jesus in a powerful way, and how that changed everything for me. One of the things that makes stories so powerful is our world is so complicated. It's so complex. There's so many different things moving and happening at different times. And stories simplify things for us. Our brains are drawn to stories She talks about in the book here that she says, recent neuroscience tells us what happens to your brain as you hear a story. Professor of neurology Paul Zak recently published his findings on the neuroscience of narrative, and his conclusions confirm something vital for living a sent life. Dr. Zak and his research team explain how when the brain receives a story, it releases cortisol, which is something that we use when we're trying to focus attention, and it's also the stress hormone so you're, you're, you're engaged in a, in a specific way when you hear a story, a story. And also oxytocin, which is our empathy and connection chemical. And those things affect behavior and drive personal transformation in ways that facts do not. There's a filmmaker named Peter Gruber, Goober who says, Telling stories is not just the oldest form of entertainment. It's the highest form of consciousness. The need for narrative is embedded deep in our brains. Increasingly, success in the information age depends that we harness the hidden power of stories. And she goes on in the book to talk about crafting your story, being able to like think through your story, the way Jesus has impacted your life, and be able to focus that in a way that you could communicate that to somebody in a couple of minutes if you had an opportunity to. And I encourage you in this room and those watching online to think through your story. What difference has Christ made in your life? And I, for a lot of you, I'm so grateful that you don't have like a dramatic like, man, before I, you know, I spent all this time locked up and all that. You know, some of, some of us have those stories. But for others of you, you don't have like a wild testimony of like what, your life before you met Jesus. But I think for if you're in that case, I would look at how the difference Jesus has made in your life when compared to your peers. You're like a lot of people my age really struggle for belonging but I've always felt like I was a part of God's family. And I, I, I met Jesus when I, was, when I was a young child. I mean, those stories are beautiful. That was Timothy's story, we're told, in the Bible. And I would encourage you to think through your story, think through your testimony if you've never done it, and then I want, to, want you to do something that will require you to have courage, which is to pray that you have an opportunity to share it with somebody. Pray that somebody... You'll find yourself in a conversation with someone where you can talk about what you believe, why you believe it, what difference Jesus has made in your life. I invite you and encourage you to do that. Paul did that in this room full of powerful people, and it was this moment where he got to speak to such an influential group, and Christ had prepared him for that time, and that was a powerful thing for Paul. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to learn um, from Paul's story today. Thank you for transformation. Thank you for what you did in Paul's life. Lord, thank you for what you've done in the lives of so many in this room. Lord, I thank you for your transformation. I thank you for your work in our lives. Lord, I thank you for your work in my life. I thank you for what you've done for me, the way you've provided the hope and the encouragement, um, the peace, Lord, the meaning that I needed. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to be faithful, 
to continue to tell the story, to look at the world around me as a, as a field that's ready to be harvested, to know that you're doing all the heavy lifting. I just need to play my little role, whatever the small part is that you're calling me to play in any given moment. So Lord, help us to be faithful with that. And I pray for people in this room that you give them boldness and courage to talk about what you've done for them. Lord, for any watching online or, in, or here with us today, Lord, that have yet to receive you as their Savior, I pray that their story would change even right now, that you would bring them into your family. Your word talks about your goodness and grace and the way that you purchased salvation for us on the cross. And that we simply need to say yes to that. We need to receive it. We need to acknowledge our need of you in our life and then receive. Lord, and those, that changes everything for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help any who have yet to do that, Lord, to do that now even. And, Lord, give them the hope. Give them the peace, the meaning. Lord, you are good. We are grateful that we can know you, that we can walk through this life with you, that we can so identify with you that when bad things happen to us, it's like they're happening to you, that, that you, you identify with your people so much that you would say those words to Paul, why are you persecuting me when he's talking about persecuting the church? And Lord, we, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship. Pray that you bless each and every person here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, would you stand with me? Let's sing together.